Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. I want to give you just a little bit of setup to this book that I hope will help us over the next really several months and even into the next couple of years. As I shared last week, we're going to be journeying through this book slowly and intentionally. This is our rhythm. This is our habit at City Point Church that we take books of the Bible and we break them down into paragraphs and we let the text do the talking. And so we're going to be in this book for quite some time, 28 chapters in the book of Matthew. So let me give you some, some quick overview. And a couple of weeks ago, I recommended a book by a man by the name of N.T. Wright, a theologian. The book was called How God Became King. In that book, he offers four subplots, four themes, if you will, strands that are woven through the Gospels and specifically the book of Matthew. And I want to put them up on the screen here for you and just share these with you as kind of a, a bit of a backdrop so that you can understand what's going on. Sort of the big picture here of the book of Matthew. So the first theme going on in the Gospels and in the book of Matthew is the story of Israel. Last week we were in Malachi 4, that was the end of part 1. Today we're in Matthew 1, it's the beginning of part 2. This is a continuation of the story of Israel, keep that in mind. The second theme is the story of Jesus as Israel's God. God promised his people that a rescuer and a deliverer would come. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus is Israel's God come in the flesh. The third theme woven through this book is the launching of God's renewed people. Not the exclusion of the Jews by any means, though many of them would not receive him, but rather the inclusion of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, that God is opening his kingdom and expanding his kingdom to all people. And then the fourth theme is the clash of the kingdoms. The battle of the unseen realm. This is not just Jesus versus Caesar, it's Jesus versus Satan. And these are the themes, the subplots, if you will, woven throughout the book of Matthew. And there's this idea called processing fluency. Processing fluency is the ease with which you understand information. And processing fluency goes up the more you understand the big picture. Okay, So if you were to sit down and watch a really intense difficult movie that's like three and a half hours, four hours long, and it's got this difficult, intricate plot, but the friend that you sit down with to watch that movie with watched it last weekend, and they say to you, hey, these are the things you want to be looking for as you watch this movie. What they're doing is they're increasing your processing fluency. They're giving you kind of the big picture, the things to look out for, so that when you watch that, that intricate movie, now you, now you can kind of follow the plot a little bit more closely and a little bit more easily. So I'm hoping that by understanding these four themes that it will increase our processing fluency of the book of Matthew. So when we get, to, uh, when we get a couple of chapters in and we see Herod killing off all of the two-year-olds and we're like, what in the world is going on? We'll understand, hey, this is the clash of the, of the kingdoms. This is, not, this is not God versus man. This is God versus Satan. There is something underneath at work here at play, the kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of light. So that's just a little bit of backdrop, a little bit of setup for the book. Keep these in mind. I will reference these throughout this series. 
I may mention, just a reminder, this is one of the main themes. This is the story of Israel. It's a continuation of Israel, and that will help us to understand the context of what's going on. So let's jump to today's paragraph. I've entitled today's message, Kingdom Clues. Kingdom Clues. Now, I have never preached a genealogy. Here we go, okay? We are going to read a lot of names. And if you've ever wondered just how committed we are to preaching every paragraph of books of the Bible, you will know after today that we are fully committed to it, okay? Kingdom Clues. If you are starting the book of Matthew, if you're picking up the book of Matthew as the Jewish readers would have done, if you are picking this up anticipating that a kingdom is going to come, then a genealogy will not bore you, it will excite you. Because you will understand that these are links in a chain connecting all the way back to the promises given to Abraham and the promise given to David that a king would come and that God would come to the nations of all people. So follow along with me. Stay with me here. Lots of names, okay? Let's see if I can get all of these right here. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, this is important, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's a bit awkward. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. We're almost there. One more section, verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Christ is not a name, it's a title. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You're thinking of all weeks for me to visit a new church. This is the one I come to. Let me give you the big idea. I want your processing fluency to increase here, okay? Here's the big idea. Matthew's genealogy foreshadows the way of the king. There are two genealogies. One is in Luke's gospel. But Matthew's genealogy here is foreshadowing the way of the king. 
Keep in mind that Matthew is a narrative. That is important as you read through the book of Matthew. That is the genre. So because it is a narrative, the author is going to be using this narrative device called foreshadowing. That's when clues are dropped early in the story that you are going to need later in the story. Some things are being given to you early on that are going to, that, that are going to, that are going to, to come to fruition later on in the story. You need to know these things. If you've ever seen The Wizard of Oz, remember Dorothy? At the beginning of The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy's dog, Toto, bites the cantankerous neighbor. Her name is Elmira Gulch. She goes to the sheriff and she gets written uh, authority by the sheriff to essentially euthanize Toto so that he doesn't go and bite anybody else. And so Elmira rides her bike to Dorothy's house in those opening scenes of The Wizard of Oz and she, she pitches her bike against the gate there, walks inside and begins to tell Dorothy that she needs to give over Toto and she's going to take that dog and put it down so that it doesn't bite anybody else. And in a moment of foreshadowing, Dorothy looks at that woman and says, you wicked witch. What happens just a short while later as that house is being taken up in the tornado? You see Elmira Gulch riding her bicycle in the tornado. And what happens to that bicycle? It turns into a broom and she turns into a witch. It's foreshadowing. Or maybe you have seen Beauty and the Beast. Remember Belle when she's kind of frolicking through the marketplace singing her song at the beginning? She sits down at a well and she is singing to a group of disinterested sheep. And as she's going through, she's got this novel in front of her and she's singing about this novel. And she says, here's where she meets Prince Charming, but she won't discover that it's him until chapter 3. It's as if she's reading her own story. Because she would meet the Prince Charming, but he would be disguised as a beast and he wouldn't, she wouldn't recognize him until later in the story. It's foreshadowing. It's a narrative literary device that, that authors will use to drop some clues early in a story so that you pick up on it, hopefully, later. So what is this genealogy doing? It's dropping some hints. It's dropping some clues about this king and the way that he will rule the way that he will lead, the way that he will govern his people. Verse 1 really acts as an introductory summary. Look at it there right at the top of the page. The book of the genealogy. That, that's the word from which we get the word genesis or beginning. This is the book of the beginning of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I mentioned this a moment ago, but Christ is not a name. It is a title. It is the Hebrew equivalent of Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would come and save God's people. So I don't want you to miss the clues. Or as my 12-year-old would say, are you, are you picking up what I'm putting down? Are you picking up what God's putting down here? Okay, some clues are being dropped, and I want you to pick them up. So the question that remains for us to answer, for God really to answer from his text here is, what clues are dropped about the way of the king in this genealogy? Three of them. The outline is going to look like this. Matthew's genealogy gives us a clue that, number one, God will be inclusive toward the marginalized. God will be inclusive toward the marginalized. I want to look at verse 2. Because I want you to first understand the promise that's made to Abraham. Abraham is the patriarch. He is the father of the Jewish people. And in verse 2, it gives us his name. Abraham 
And then here's his lineage, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, the 11 other brothers for a total of 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob's name would be changed to Israel, but, but Abraham is the patriarch. In Genesis 12, a promise is given to Abraham, and God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing And then in verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. But notice this, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. See, God has always been a God of inclusion, bringing people in. He is the God of all of the families of the earth. So that's the promise to Abraham. But next I want you to notice in the rest of this portion of the paragraph, I want you to pay special note to the women. Look at verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, those are twins, by Tamar. There's the first woman. And Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. There's the second woman. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, there's the third. And Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. There's the fourth. She's not named here, but her name is Bathsheba. See, Jews traditionally would trace their lineage through the fathers. So it's very unorthodox for Matthew to include the women, but he does it on purpose. He's trying to drive a point. Now, who are these women? Well, let's start with Tamar. Tamar, her father-in-law was Judah. So Judah is Tamar's father-in-law. Judah has three sons. The oldest is given to Tamar as her husband. He dies. And so then she is given the second born, and he refuses to, to, uh, to give her children, and so he ends up dying. And then the third is a little bit younger, so Judah says to Tamar, why don't you wait until he gets older, and then I'll give you him as your husband. But when he gets older, Judah does not end up giving that thirdborn, and so Tamar begins to take matters into her own hands. And she disguises herself as a prostitute, and then she entices her father-in-law, Judah, and he comes into her, and she becomes pregnant by her father-in-law, and she has these twins that are named in the genealogy. That's Tamar. It's a good start, huh? <laughs> then there's Rahab. Rahab is a Gentile, which just means she's not a Jew. She's a Gentile prostitute who stowed away and lied about the spies who were, who were looking at the city of Jericho and spying out the city of Jericho. And then she lies about them to hide them so that then they can be released. And then there's Ruth. Ruth is also a foreigner. She married into Judaism. But her husband died. But then she marries the next of kin in order to carry the family line. Her decision of faith, the the line of Jesus literally comes through her because of her decision to to attach herself to the faith of her mother-in-law. And then there's Bathsheba, or as she is described in this genealogy, the wife of Uriah. That detail is important. David is the king, and he sees Bathsheba bathing one night while her husband is off to battle. And he lusts after her. He calls for her. He summons her. He sleeps with her, and he makes her pregnant. 
realizing what has happened, he's got to cover up his tracks. So he, he calls for Uriah to be sent out to the hottest part, the front of the battle, at the hottest part of the battle so that he will die, which in fact he does. And then David takes Bathsheba as his wife and has this son named, well, this, actually it's the son that ends up dying. But in spite of David's failures, God still chooses to include and use Bathsheba. Solomon would come through Bathsheba after the death of that son. This is not really a PG family-friendly storyline going on here with these women. So why does God include these women? He's including these women because he has every reason not to. These women are all outsiders. They're, they're non-Jewish. Bathsheba is the only one that may have been a Jew, but because she was married to a Hittite, a non-Jew, she was, she was not considered a Jew. She was considered an outsider. So these four women are outsiders. Three of the four are involved in illicit sexual relationships. And the fourth who was not, Ruth, whose story is maybe a little bit more cleaned up than the other ones, her, her lineage, her ancestry goes back to an illicit relationship. When Lot's daughters would get him drunk and go sleep with him, and one of those babies was named Moab, and Ruth was a Moabite. So, I mean, this is just scandal after scandal from these women. And it's as if God is setting the story for the next scandalous story that would come down when a teenage girl named Mary would be found with child. You can imagine in a small town when Mary announces that she was with child of the Holy Spirit... Like, that's real convenient, Mary. Even Joseph was a bit doubtful, thinking of maybe putting her away privately, divorcing her. He had every right to do that. See, what God does is he specializes in making outsiders insiders. He specializes in using those people that the rest of the world would refuse. He specializes in taking scandals and sanctifying them for his grace. That's what he does. The story is told of a young beggar boy who wanted to go into the palace in England to see the king. And every day he would watch as people would come up to that guard and be welcomed in, go through those gates and through the front doors and go into that palace to see the king. And this, this young beggar boy wanted that opportunity to see the king. And so one day he decided, I'm going to try this. I'm going I'm to see if I can get in and see the king. So in his tattered clothes, he walks up to that, to that guard outside of the gate and he, he tries to just march right in, but the guard steps in front of him and says, son, what's your name? The boy gives him his name and the guard checks the record, the log of visitors for that day. He says, your name's not on this list. You have to leave. The boy feels rejected and as he turns to leave, he begins to cry, thinking of how he'll never be able to see the king like he so longed to do. And as he's walking away from that palace, an older boy meets him and sees him crying. And he says, little boy, why are you crying? And the little boy says to that older boy, well, I just want to see the king. The older boy smiles. He says, follow me. That old, older boy takes off right towards that gate, walks right past that guard. That little boy is not sure what to do. He walks past the guard too. That older boy goes up the steps, goes right through the front doors, down the long corridor, right to where the king is. And when he gets to the king, that older boy says, Father, this young boy wants to meet you. See, that's the gospel. The gospel is that through the son, we have access to the father. 
that the sun takes us in in our tattered clothes right past the prison guard who would want to reject us and refuse us right inside the palace, right up to the king and says, Father, this boy, this girl would like to meet you. The gospel is that Jesus became an outsider. Jesus was the great insider who became an outsider so that outsiders could become insiders. He was despised and he was rejected and he was even crucified outside the city so that those of us who are beggars, tattered in the clothing of our sin, could be brought in. It's what God does. He specializes in the scandal. He specializes in the outsider. He specializes in those that everybody else would refuse. And I'm afraid what what we need more and more in our churches is we need to get to the point where we have a Sunday theology that becomes a Monday reality. We hear messages on Sunday that we think are great. We hear about God on Sunday from the scripture and we say, yes, I love the God of the Bible. And then we get to Monday and we think, but that couldn't be true about me. We need to start understanding that those things that are true about God that we learn in church on Sunday need to be true in our lives as well on Monday. You might be here today thinking that you are the great outsider, that you are the one that God could never receive, that you are the one that God could never use. And if that is true, and if you are thinking that in your life, it is because you have a Sunday theology that has not become a Monday reality. We've missed the whole reason he came. Jesus did not come for the cleaned up, put together, on the right track. He came for the messed up, falling apart, derailed from the track. Like Tamar and Bathsheba and Rahab. So if you're here this morning wondering, would God receive me? The answer is a resounding yes. He will take you just as you are, and he will receive you. This genealogy is dropping clues. The king is going to include people that no one else would to fulfill a promise he made to Abraham that through Abraham's seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed because he is the God of inclusion. Matthew's genealogy gives us this clue that God will be inclusive toward the marginalized. But secondly, Matthew's genealogy gives us a clue that God will be faithful through the failures. God will be faithful through the failures. Before we jump into the second portion, really from verses 7 down through 11, I want you to understand the second promise. The first one was made to Abraham. The second promise was made to David. In verse 6, it says that Jesse was the father of David, the king. That's an important note that he's dropping there. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is going to make a covenant with David. And there are three parts to this covenant promise. The first part is the promise of land. The second is the promise of descendants. And the third is the promise of blessing through an eternal established kingdom. And so all of the kings that would follow David were to be living and leading in such a way that they were anticipating the coming of the one true king and his eternal kingdom. They were to live lives of faithfulness and they were to lead the people of God in faithfulness to the covenant relationship that God made with them on the mountain with Moses. That's what the job of the king was. 
So the great question we have this morning is, how did they do? How did the kings in this genealogy do in leading the people faithfully in the covenant in anticipation of the one true king who would someday come? Well, I'm going to do this. I made this easy this morning. I put together a scorecard, okay? And real simple, I'm giving them a hit or a miss. It's like battleship, right? Hit or miss, this is it. So here's the scorecard of these 14 kings following David. First, there's Solomon. I gave him a miss. Though he was blessed with wisdom and wealth, his heart was turned away to women. Then there's Rehoboam. He's a miss. He ignored the advice of the older leaders in the community and went with the advice of the younger men in the community. And as a result, the kingdom was split in two. Abijah was a miss. Scripture says his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. Asaph, or Asa, was a big hit. He led a religious reformation. He tore down the foreign altars and commanded the people of God to seek the Lord. Then there's Jehoshaphat, his son. He was a hit. The Bible says the Lord was with him. Then there's Joram. He was a miss. He kills off all of his brothers, and he does evil in the sight of the Lord. Then there was Uzziah. Uzziah was a hit, then a miss. <laughs> he started off strong. He was seeking God, but pride got the best of him. He enters into the temple to burn incense. The priests try to resist him because that was forbidden for a king to do. And as a result, God strikes him with leprosy that he will have until the end of his life. His son, Jotham, was a hit. He followed in the good ways of his father, just not all the forbidden temple stuff. Then there was Ahaz. He was a miss. He made idols to Baal and burned his own sons as offerings. Hezekiah, I gave him a hit-ish. <laughs> he repairs and reassembles the temple worship. God gives him a great victory over a foreign nation under the leadership of Sennacherib, but it all goes to his head. He ultimately will repent and he will turn back to God, but judgment will come on his sons. His son's name was Manasseh. Manasseh was a miss mostly. Mostly miss. He worshiped all the hosts of heaven, Scripture says. God would judge him through a king of the king of Assyria. He would be bound in chains and brought to Babylon. He would repent and God would show him mercy, but the damage was already done and the people's hearts had already been turned away to the other gods of the other nations of the world. Then there was Amos, his son. He was a miss. He followed in the evil ways of Manasseh. Then there's Josiah. Josiah is a big hit. There's a reason parents are still naming their kids Josiah and not Manasseh. <laughs> Josiah, he's eight years old when he becomes the king. As they're cleaning out the temple, they find the law and they bring it to Josiah. As Josiah realizes that the people of God have been living unfaithful to the law, Josiah tears his clothing in anguish and he calls the people to repent. And there is a revival that comes to the people of God under his reign. But it's short-lived because then his son Jeconiah and the brothers are a miss, miss, and a miss. God continued to warn that judgment was coming and it finally would when Jerusalem would be attacked by Nebuchadnezzar, the people would be chained and they would be marched off into Babylon as slaves. These are the guys right here. These are the guys that were supposed to represent the eternal king that was one day to come. These are the guys that were supposed to lead the people of God in faithfulness to the covenant. Hit, miss, 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 hit, 
miss? Does your life ever feel that way? You ever feel a little hit and miss? I wonder if we were to, if we were to write a scorecard for your week last week, what would it look like? How'd you do? Good days, bad days, good moments, bad moments, mostly bad, mostly good, some mixture of the two. Well, I put together a sample, a sample scorecard for you. This, trust me, I did not follow anybody this week. This does not represent anybody in particular in the room. But here's a sample scorecard. Ready? On Sunday, hit. Man, I went to church. Yes. We worshiped the Lord. We studied the Bible. It was a good day. Monday, miss. Got angry at my kids. Yelled at them when I shouldn't have. I let anger get the best of me. Tuesday, miss. I lived for myself that day. I didn't think of others that day. Wednesday, hit. I went to life group. We studied the message from Sunday. I realized that God is faithful through failures. It was a good day. I, I ended on a good note. I ended strong. I ended encouraged. And then I got to Thursday and it was a miss. Fear got the best of me. And I stopped walking in faith. It got to Friday. It was another miss. Started to struggle with lustful thoughts on Friday. Got to Saturday. It's kind of a hit and miss on Saturday. It started out pretty good, but it just kind of tapered off from there. And then what happens is we walk into church on Sunday and our heads are hung low and we're defeated and we're discouraged because somehow we think that God's faithfulness is dependent on our own and that he can't be faithful even though we have been a failure. Can I just tell you this morning, God doesn't have a scorecard. He's not doing this. He's not following you this week and saying, Sunday, good, Monday, nope, nope, nope. Tuesday, would you just do that? Would you just say that? No, 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 I can't be doing that. God's blessing is not dependent on your faithfulness. And, and listen, there, there is a whole group of people in, the ch in church today, and they, have, they, they, are, they are coming back to church and wanting to get into church, but you've been raised in a culture that, that made God's faithfulness to you dependent on your faithfulness to him. And so you're sitting here and you're fighting these thoughts in your head because some pastor on some stage one time preached a message and the undertone and the undercurrent of that tone was that God will not be faithful to you if you are not faithful to him. But what the genealogy is dropping for us this morning is that failure after failure after failure does not inhibit God's faithfulness. His kingdom will come through complete failures. Because God's faithfulness is not based on your record. It's based on his. That is not an excuse for us to go live however we want to live. Boy, I've heard that pushback before. People who have been filled with the spirit of God, who've been purchased by the blood of Christ, our desires have changed. We don't want to go live for ourselves. We don't want to go live for the world. We don't want to go live and just run up our scorecard with a bunch of misses. It's not some excuse to go live like that, but what it does do is when we do fail, we have the confidence to return. We have the confidence to come back knowing that God is not there with his arms crossed, with a look of disappointment on his face and his brow furrowed because we have disappointed him and shamed him in the way that we live. That's not what God is doing. Instead, he's like the father on the front porch who's running after the son whose silhouette comes up on the horizon. God is faithful through failures. We get to the end of this list of kings and we're like, will there ever be a faithful king? Like one who will just consistently and completely get it right? Well, the answer is yes. 
you have to keep reading. His name is Jesus. But the faithful king will not be based on the faithfulness of men. It will be based on the faithfulness of God. So this genealogy shows us that man's failures do not deter God's faithfulness. Matthew's genealogy is dropping some clues. Are we picking up what God's putting down here? We want to get it. Here's the third one, the third clue from this genealogy. Matthew's genealogy gives us a clue that God will be working in the silence. Look at verse 12. It says, And after the deportation to Babylon, that's after they were hauled off into exile, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And right there at the end of verse 12 is the end of the biblical account. This is how the biblical account, as we understand it and know it in the Old Testament, ends. It ends with Zerubbabel. We have this hopeless situation. Israel is being ruled by a foreign king in a foreign kingdom. They're in exile again. They went from Egypt to Babylon. And here they are. And the Old Testament ends with Zerubbabel leading a group of Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, hoping that the glory of God will return. And in Haggai chapter 2, look at what it says here in verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel. Notice the next word, the governor of Judah. Why the governor? He's a king. He's been stripped of the title. Because they are no longer under God's rule. They are now under the foreign rule of another kingdom. So at the end of verse 12, everything goes silent. So look at verse 13. The next nine names we know nothing about. Abiad, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Achim, Eliad, Eleazar, Mathan, Jacob. Silence. The biblical account is done. Matthew included it from Jewish records that he would have had. There's no biblical account of what God was doing and how these people lived and whether they were faithful or whether they were failures, whether they were consistent. But here's, here's what I believe God is, is subtly speaking. The clue that he's dropping here in this genealogy is that God is continuing to work even when things are silent. Even when we have no record and no evidence to point to, God is still working and God is still moving. Because God's silence does not equal God's absence. Have you ever had a moment of silence in your life? Maybe you're in it right now. God, would you just say something? God's silence does not equal God's absence. Even in the silence, God is working. Even in the silence, God is moving. But I get it. Silence can be deafening. The quietest room in the world is in Redmond, Washington, it's inside Microsoft headquarters. The noise level in that particular room is negative 20 decibels. Just for context, you breathe at 10 decibels. The noise your breath makes is 10 decibels. If you sit in this room and don't say anything, the noise level in that room is negative 20 decibels. You can, this is kind of weird. You can literally hear the fluids moving through your body, the blood going through your veins. Like when you move, like you can hear the ligaments moving. 
in that room if you sit in silence. And what's crazy about that room and rooms like it is that people can hardly stand being in there. I mean, 30 minutes, 45 minutes seems to be about the max. To sit in there by yourself and just be quiet for that amount of time, it's deafening. We don't like silence. It's uncomfortable. What do we want to do? We want to throw open the door of that, of that room and, and run out. Like, I want out of this. Turn, turn a fan on. Give me some white noise. Give me something. Silence is deafening. And when we're in a season of life when it appears that God is not speaking the way that he once was, we start to wonder and worry, God, have you forgotten me? Why aren't you speaking? Where are you? What are you doing? So let me give you some practical things to remember. What should we do when God goes silent? Three reminders, if that's you this morning. Number one, harbor the promise. Harbor the promise. Webster's defines harbor as a verb in this way, to hold especially persistent in the mind. Take the promise of God and just tie it up to the dock of your life. Hold it especially persistent in your mind. What God has said. What he has spoken in his word. The promises that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Find those promises and just harbor them. Hold them persistently in your mind. It would be some 2,000 years between Abraham, the promise God made to Abraham, and the fulfillment in Jesus. And the distance between promise and fulfillment sometimes seems even farther than that. But what do we do in that space between? We harbor the promise. Number two, what should we do when God goes silent? Number two, hold to the relationship. Hold to the relationship because one of the tactics of the enemy is that he is going to go after the relationship. When God goes silent, he's going to start screaming at you. He's going to start saying, God's forgotten you. God's left you. God doesn't care about you. You are of no value to him. And so in those moments, hold to the relationship. Understand that Christ has saved you and forgiven you and redeemed you. Just keep talking to Jesus. Just because it, it appears that his mouth is closed does not mean that his ears are closed. He's listening. He's working. Hold to that relationship. And then number three, what should we do when God goes silent? Hope for the fulfillment. God will ultimately break the silence. Last week's message was the beginning of the silence. This week's message is the breaking of the silence. God is going to speak. He's going to announce it to some shepherds on a hillside that there is good news of great joy which shall be to all people. Realize they'd been waiting 400 years to hear that. 400 years for that fulfillment. Hope for the fulfillment. Now I need to warn you. The fulfillment of the promise may not come the way that you want it to come, when you want it to come. Just because you have the narrative already figured out for God that you're willing to give to him and say, God, if you would just do it this way, does not mean that that's the way it's going to happen. As a matter of fact, next week, come back for the next message about Joseph and you will find that Joseph definitely did not plan for his engagement to happen the way that it did. 
God's fulfillment of his promise may not necessarily play out the way that you expect that it should, but God will come through. He never makes a promise that he does not intend to fulfill. So if God seems to be quiet in your life, it does not mean that he has stopped working. And this genealogy is the proof. Nine generations that we know nothing about, and yet God is still very much active. Look at verse 17. Verse 1 was a summary. Verse 17 is a conclusion for this genealogy. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to to the Christ, 14 generations. What's with the number 14? Matthew was a numbers guy. He's dropping these numbers on purpose. Here's another clue. And this is what I believe the clue is. The name David in Hebrew consists of three Hebrew letters. The first letter is the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The next letter is the sixth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the third letter is the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, all adding up to the number 14. And so there is a clue within the clue that Matthew is pointing once again to the son of David. The son of David was the king who would come. The son of David is the one who would be faithful to the covenant. The son of David is the one who would establish the throne and rule and reign forever, a kingdom of justice. It is the Messiah, the promised king, Jesus, who is the Christ. So Matthew's genealogy foreshadows this way of the king. Don't miss the clues. I know we can get into Matthew chapter 1. And, you know, when you start out your year and your yearly Bible reading plan, you're like, I'm going to start in Matthew. You're like, "Uh, let's go to chapter 2. It's easy to look at that and be like, what what is going on? There's nothing happening there but a whole bunch of names. Oh, there's a a lot going on right there in those whole bunch of names. And God's dropping some clues about this king and the way of his kingdom. Not just the physical lineage and the physical way that he would come, but also the way that he would rule and the type of king that he would be. That he would be the God who would be inclusive toward the marginalized and that he would be faithful through the failures and that he would be the God who will be working in the silence. So that's the genealogy. So what can we learn from this? We want to learn to live. We don't just want to learn to learn. We want to make application here through the Spirit of God. So I've got three questions. My first is this. What are you trusting or who are you trusting to make you an insider? What or who are you trusting to make you an insider? We, we know we're outsiders. Like we can feel it. We know we're broken. We know we're in need. We, we, we know that something is missing. The question is, what or who are you trusting? Because if you are trusting anything other than the Son to bring you through the gate, into the palace, to the King, friend, you will not get there. The gospel is that Jesus, who was the great insider, became an outsider so that outsiders could become insiders. And so now it's through the Son that you can come to the Father. And if you're here this morning, and maybe you've done some religion, or maybe you've done some church, or maybe you've done some spirituality, or maybe you've done none of it at all, And you're sitting here thinking, John, I know I'm still an outsider. How do I become an insider? Let the Son bring you in. Let the Son bring you to the Father. It is through faith in Jesus 
that we have our sins forgiven and that we have any rela- a relationship with God. And so trust him. Trust him alone. Don't trust me. Don't trust this church. Trust the king. And let him rule and reign in your life. Number two, where does Sunday theology need to become a Monday reality? Take inventory. Your own life. You know God uses marginalized people. You just don't think he could use you. You know God is faithful through failures. You just don't think he can be faithful through your failure. You know God is working in the silence, just not when you can't hear him. There's a disconnect between Sunday theology and Monday reality. That needs to change. And the only way that it changes is for the Spirit of God to bring his truth to bear on your life. Believe what God has spoken. Push out and deny the lies and trust the truth. Let Sunday theology, what you know to be true about God, become a Monday reality in your everyday life. And my third question is this. How is your life helping usher in the way of the king? Like links on a chain, this genealogy, life after life after life, one linked to the other that would ultimately bring the king. In a very similar way, now we as his followers are linked to him. But we don't want to be the last link on the chain. We are living in such a way to to encourage and to invite and to bring others into that kingdom. We cannot save them. We cannot forgive their sin. We cannot ultimately change their life, but we can introduce them to the one who can. And as we live our lives intentionally ushering in the way of the king through our lives, the kingdom continues to expand and it pushes back against the kingdom of darkness. And God's rule and reign rests on more and more lives in our world today. So what about your life? God will be faithful in spite of us, but I'd much rather he be faithful in partnership with us. Allow your life to be a life that is lived in such a way that will usher in the kingdom of the king. God's dropping some clues here. Let's pick them up, put them in our pocket, and take them home with us today. Can we pray together? Father, we thank you. We thank you that every word is inspired. Every word of this book is breathed out by you. You have superintended this book, and now you have given it to us. And so as we have studied a different kind of text today, I trust and believe that we have seen your face anew and afresh. If there is one here that is still feeling like an outsider, I pray, Jesus, that you would just meet them outside the the gate and bring them in. Help them to see that through faith in you, they can have entrance. For the Christian that they're an insider, but they still feel like an outsider on Monday morning. I pray that there would be this bridge between Sunday theology and Monday reality in their life, that you would bring the truth of your word to bear. And God, I pray that every one of us would leave this place intentionally living in such a way as to bring your kingdom. It's all because of your grace. It's always been your grace, and it will continue to always be your grace. We thank you for what you have done, and we trust and believe you to continue to do your work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. 
You can also find us on social media at CityPointAV. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.